Well, uh, as as my lack of, you know, when I press the record button, my audio changes a little bit, or maybe I go into my recording voice mode instead of uh, instead of normal talking. Because you know, when I'm recording this, people who like to play along at home, I have what they call a uh, monitor, not to be confused with a visual monitor, but I turn on this thing that lets me hear myself talk which is a fun experience. And uh, as you could attest to, we were talking uh, about a little software-defined talk stuff before we recorded. And I think I had on my uh, I'd rather be taking a nap voice. And then I started recording, and now I'm like, hey, how's it going? Come down to the car dealership and get a new Ford Pinto. Do they still well, sell at, Pintos? As we have covered on a previous episode, you do have an ad read voice. You have a whole mm. ad read uh, persona that I, I pointed out. Yeah, people need to go back an episode and they can listen to get the full story. So, uh, but that's okay. I understand that you have different voices. You know, just use the one that you think is most appropriate. That's good. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I've been I've been traveling a lot, and uh, I think I think I've mentioned this a few times, but I've I've almost gotten. I mean, I haven't even been traveling that much, but I, I've I've gotten to the state. I don't yet have the patented Israel Gat in Switzerland problem where I forget where I am. Have I told have I told that story here before? <laughs> I think so. He woke up and he didn't know what hotel yeah. he was in. He had, yeah. he had he had to call uh Round Rock Roy and be like, "Roy, I don't know where I am. Where am I?" And uh which I think that that happens every now and then if you travel too much. But I I have I have the beginnings of that problem where I'm like, "I think I was in London on Monday." Was that last week that I was there? <laughs> Anyways, uh, <clears throat> but uh, the con- that you know, I wasn't. I was. Uh, I was in Washington D.C. or Maryland. I did have some uh, some crab cakes. I took a picture of them. I don't know. I mean, they felt or crab roll. I guess they felt like a genuine thing. That I um, they but had. Did one. you have? I think, as I remember, did yeah. you have like? Were they on a bun? Yes, of some kind. They were on a bun. So isn't, isn't that yeah, a roll? So we're going to have a little detour here. Okay. Like, so this is like a real, um, you know, people that eat barbecue, right? You know, if you take all your barbecue and then you like put it on a sandwich, it's not that that's bad, but just remember that is, uh, uh, you're essentially filling yourself up with the, the cheap carbohydrates as you know, versus like, you know, really enjoying the meat. And I think the same thing applies to crab cakes. It's like, ideally uh, you want a crab cake, a great crab cake. I know this will sound obvious but it's mostly crab, right? It's mostly crab <laughs> and it's been prepared and it sits, stands alone, right? Usually they serve them too, right? That's normally how they come, two on a plate and there's minimal, you know, uh, like sauces, tartar sauce and, you know, buns and things like that. So that is a little bit of a rookie mistake is to take the crab cake, put it on bread and then put a lot of sauce on it. It's mm-hmm. like, well, you're not really experiencing the full crab. I cake. see, I see, I see. It's 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 like drowning your sushi in soy sauce, and, it, and exactly, sauce. or barbecue in sauce, and mm-hmm. you know, and you can't really taste it, right? It, it, put the bun, a lot of sauce, you know, and you're yeah. like, well, I mean, why did I drive, you know, five hours to get to the central Oof. place to do this? Yeah. You go, you go to what? What's her name? Like Tootie, who's out there and like, uh, she's got Snow's Barbecue. Her name's yeah. not Tootie, but it's it's a. Uh, it's that movie where there's a cross-dressing Dustin Hopton. Tootsie. Tootsie? Yeah, I think yes. her name was Tootsie. And she, she's, uh, she's you know, typical uh, barbecue pitmaster out there, just like uh, with gigantic forearms. And uh, she you know, looks like the walls of Louis Mueller, like making making great barbecue for you. Yeah, you wouldn't want to go there and cover it in sauce. That'd be terrible. Well, uh, also, uh, well, I had some crab rolls. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if that was good or bad. It was just like, you know, it wasn't like some sort of fancy gourmet place. It was just like you go in there and, and they got a, you got a walk up counter. I don't know. It was fine. And I also, uh, I also went to, uh, 
I, while I was there, I went to get some terrible barbecue because that's all there was at the, uh, it was like, you know, Billy Boy Ray's barbecue shack in the, uh, the, uh, the place I was staying at the Gaylord. Uh, there was a whole, one of those simulacrum, like downtown areas, like the domain, you know, like a totally fabricated made up thing. And so you walk around there and there's like the, uh, go get some barbecue. And it was something like Northern ribs. And I had to ask the guy, like, what are northern ribs? And he was like, he didn't say it quite this dismissively, but what he was telling me is like, I don't know. They're like St. Louis ribs or something, uh, which is fine. Of course, they're covered in sauce. But they did the trick. They're fine. And uh, oh, and then also funny detail to me is uh, I like to eat my barbecue with a lot of onions. Uh, you know, down down in Texas, you get you get onions and uh, you get you get pickles it's always those those wafer cooked pickles and if you're at a really good place they'll also just give you jalapenos if you want that so i always ask for onions and uh so i got this barbecue and asked him for onions and he looked at me kind of funny and he was like mm, you mean like like purple onions and uh you know i accepted the purple onions because there were no white onions but clearly not a real barbecue place as far as and i don't know maybe over on the east coast there they don't have white onions yet maybe they sort of went went down the white onions migrated like through the Erie Canal and down the Mississippi and kind of just avoided that whole area. But they're, they're still working on that purple over there. No, no white onions, which is just as satisfying. And then, and then to complete the story, uh, it turns out I, I had a meeting and I was eating these ribs in front of like a vegetarian. And uh, <laughs> what are you, you going to do? Wow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Just set the uh, set the bar a little bit higher for yourself. Hold but, on. Let me polish off these ribs before we try to convince you that yeah, uh, we're, yeah. we're the right people to go with. But, you know, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm at a I'm at a conference. It's our conference. So there's lots of people I know. And, and it and it did it did take all of like two and a half hours for me to finally eat all of the ribs because I, I kept talking to people and doing things. But that's all a lead up to say. I have a lot of expenses I need to file and I'm in a slightly confused state. And then here's, here's the deal. I, this this is my excuse for not having read detailed news uh, this week. Not that there's any, I think, I think Cloudera and Hortonworks combined stock store looks great. Uh, Love that. (laughs) Uh, Done. And then then finally the uh, Oracle executive, they're, they're like, no one believes this spending more time with family stuff. He's just like, I'm out. Or maybe like the gambit for like, uh, negotiating for better pay and power just didn't work out because you know larry came back from his scuba diving with benioff and and they are like nope not gonna happen so that guy was he's gone he's gonna gonna go live in a chateau with leo or something um <laughs> same neighborhood i don't think he had the same he didn't buy autonomy so perhaps he has a much more illustrious career anyhow i was filing expenses and uh constantly what happens because my expense system is in u.s dollars and most of my money now is spent in euros so I'm going to, I figured out one thing that happened is, is, uh, my expenses don't line up. I don't know if you've experienced this and say a concur, but you stay at a hotel and you've got three basic expenses at a hotel. You got your nightly rate. You have like 20 different taxes from the state to the municipality to paying for you, your USA today, which are like line itemed. And then if you buy stuff at the restaurant to eat, you can charge that to your room. So you got to contend with all three of these options. And then if you're like me, Every now and then you might need to cancel or adjust your hotel. And then that's a whole other shit show you got to take care of in the accounting, which I have that in another issue I haven't figured out yet, uh, but not in this issue. Oh, then there's a third case where no one actually emailed you a receipt 
And then you got to email this hotel in Berlin and they're like, you know, das is not good. And uh, it takes like three weeks to get a receipt. So all sorts of problems. But in this case, the the expenses were adding up to $1,200 when what was charged was actually $1,098. And I, I can't do math well, so I got really confused and I realized, oh, that's because I paid in euros. So I keep looking at these receipts and these are in euros and not in dollars. So uh, that's what I've spent mm-hmm. the last hour contending with and, and various other things. Yes, that is a very, uh, the, I don't know, some of the systems I've been in, they usually ask you right at the beginning, like, are all your receipts mm. and are all your expenses? And then as soon as you say no, they kind of take you down the more complex workflow. In this case, it's good though, right? Because they sort of like prompt you then to be like, okay, which currency? And then they yeah. help you try to figure out That's the exchange true. rate, That's which true. is like the hardest part of like, well, wait a minute, what exchange rate am I, uh, because then you then all of a sudden you find yourself a, like a currency trader. You're like, well, wait a minute, like what? Like I don't know. It's been a week. Like what? What is this going to really show up on the yeah, credit yeah. card bill as? Man, that is that is true. Well, you know, and and then for all the complaints, like I I try not to complain about the the software too much because it is it is a lot better than it used to be. And you know, what are you going to do? Right? It's enterprise software, and and we use Concur. And over the years that I've used it, it it does get better. Um, not in the, you know, you've had a terrible high school and wait till you go to college since, but they are slowly improving it. And, uh, I can see the progress that they have. It, it's, uh, whatever. Filing expenses is annoying, is annoying, but just like enterprise software, it's not the software's fault. Usually it's the people who set the policy. <laughs> the, people, the people, yes. They're well said. Uh, yeah. that should just be on the, uh, a scroll written in stone. That's usually the problem. It's almost always the case. Yeah. So, so not, not to, uh, not to go over, uh, the, uh, not to skip over the news too much, but like, what, what, what did you see that caught your eye? What is, what has been generating ideas in your head? Well, one, uh, thing, I think you were out, but actually we got a, a note from a listener who mm. wanted a, 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 a sticker. So, uh, I'm going to say it's Michael anyway. And it turns out he lives in, uh, in Virginia. So I was uh, corresponding with him and I said, Hey, you know, are you going to spring one? Cause it's like about the time this is the event you're just at. So I'm not going to say any uh, specific. He just says that, you know, I'm just going to say like he works in the government somewhere. I'll just say that because right? I don't think it's, I don't know if he wants me to say the exact part. And so he was asking me and he's like, um, well, just pivotal do stuff <laughs> in the, in the government. And I was, mm. you know, and I just, so I just took on like, well, I don't, I don't really know. But uh, probably because he was mm. saying that they do a lot of AWS and they do a lot of Azure. So I just thought, I don't know, I, I was thinking about when you got back, like, I'm just guessing, you know, and you correct me here that I assume there was a lot of federal government customers at Spring One doing stuff. And I just thought, like, one, is that the case where they at the conference? And then, you know, this is someplace we don't talk. We talk so much about like the, I don't know, the new upcoming stuff. And not that the government necessarily isn't like, what are those guys doing and how are they making sense of the cloud? Was that a topic at this conference at all? Mm, there, there was the, as I say now that I'm Mr. Cosmopolitan Global Guy, the U.S. Air Force was there. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, well, I don't, I haven't combed through all the stuff, but I don't think there were other, as, as we would say, Fed customers speaking there. I think... I don't know. We so so I I think that's the only one I know of. There might have been others, but we do have a ton of federal customers and I don't I don't know if we have that many like state and local people. I mean, part of the issue with uh 
enterprise software to generalize is that it's expensive. And so at some point, uh, there's a cutoff point, maybe at the county level where like it's probably unless it's like Los Angeles or New York or something, uh, you know, and I don't know, maybe Houston's big enough, but there's just not enough money to pay for that kind of stuff um, for the pricing that you have if you don't have like a mid-market offering. But the federal government, completely the opposite, right? They they have lots of money and there's lots of them, uh, lots of different agencies. And to be fair, they also do a tremendous amount of uh, services and custom written software. So they have they have the the size and the needs that uh, other large companies have. So yeah, we have like um, I forget how many people are in it, but we have uh, as representative of of how much government business we have. We probably have a Fed sales team that is maybe eight or ten people, including the manager. And then, and then the sales engineers or platform architects, as we call them, uh, there's probably at least five, if not 10 sort of, uh, PAs who support that. So yeah, we have, we have a big federal practice. Um, and of course, most of it is like, they don't want to be public about what they do. Um, but the U S air force talks about it all the time. So they're, they're, uh, and they're, I mean, obviously since I work at Pivotal, I think they're a great use case, but they're a good use case of um, like an organization that normally takes like, you know, five to 10 years to just like release a line of code to production. And uh, so that's dumb. <laughs> and so, so they, they, and they somehow, I mean, I sort of know how, but still it's unbelievable. Like they have somehow figured out how to fix at least in a small way, like all the problems, the classic problems of government IT contracting, right? And so they're slowly but surely working on that. And so, yeah, they're they're a customer of ours. And there's various other federal agencies um, that do do work with us and that are customers. So, yeah, there's a good chance that if you work for a, a U.S. federal agency, I mean, there's definitely a chance that some pivotal person is trying to sell to them. Uh, <laughs> but there's also uh, a worthwhile chance that they're already a customer doing something. Yeah, no, all that makes sense. I think uh, it's kind of what I was in the email. We were going back and forth. It's like, you know, the government, of course, is so big. But, you know, I, sometimes it, I, you can go back and say the government has like lots of unique requirements. But another way I like to think of it is like, they usually are doing lots of the same types or facing the same types yeah. of like digital transformation challenges. They just have like an, an especially complicated procurement cycle, right? Yes. You're almost like, that's why uh, I always think when someone says like they work like a fed salesperson or just like they work in fed, it's like they, that usually means they have the specialized domain knowledge of understanding procurement and then, you know, or in this case, or any of the specific agencies, like how they work, because that's the thing that's most unique. It's mm -hmm. usually not necessarily just again, my experience, it's not necessarily the problems are unique. It's not like, oh, you, you walk in there and they, you've never seen a problem like this, but you usually have never seen kind of a, a procurement or just like an organization that looks like this. So, yeah. um, so, all right. So that's good. I, I feel like well, I've done my duty. Well, if you, if you and the listeners will allow me to, uh, uh, give my dissertation on how government IT buyers are different. I've, I've written down one, two, three, four, five, six points that, that I can go over based <laughs> right. on, based on, uh, you know, I don't know if I've talked with government people over in Oceana, but I've talked with them elsewhere. That sounds like a really lame lap song. I mean, rap song, 
about how you've talked with government people all over the world, you know, from Paris to Milan to Los Angeles and DC or something. <laughs> so, and I don't know, Winnipeg, I, I don't, I embarrassingly don't know what the capital of Canada is. Ho hopefully it's something. Someone should look that up. We'll give you a sticker. Anyways, yeah, we'll uh, figure it out. I think that's the first, that's the first problem, uh, that, that you just went over there, which is like procurement is really hard. Uh, it's just, it's just a lot harder just because like at a federal agency, one reason it's hard is because like you might need Congress to allocate the money, <laughs> right? And, and, and it might be part of a budget that was passed and it's just like illegal to allocate the money in some way that's, that you need to. Or I don't know if illegal is the right word, but it's not like what the policy is. Now, the other side of that, and this is a common thing, I was just um, at one of those round tables that was actually a square table conversation yesterday, and there were two government people on it. Um, and this this comes up all the time where someone, the advice they were giving them is like, in, in especially in government, but in any large organization, people often say, we can't do that because of this policy. And it's a good practice to ask them to send you the documentation of that policy because oftentimes it doesn't exist. And uh, like this person was saying that, like as one example, they were working in some organization that claimed some policy or process needed to be followed. And there were like, he said 40, but some, let's, something like 40 people who were like project managing that, the, the results of that policy. But then it turned out that policy actually didn't exist. It was just like this institutional What's a positive word of fantasy? This institutional shared delusion, which is not a positive word that people are following. So yeah, procurement's really hard. Uh, and, you know, you have to have, and it's, and things also become hard. I don't know how it is elsewhere, but in the US government, you know, you've got your like approved contractors. So you've got all these weird little companies that when you go to their website, they've got like, you know, still a, a animated GIF of an American flag from like 2002. And they're sort of like an approved contractor. And I don't really understand how they work, but they seem like a way of like doing contracts that are basically just this pipe to like Lockheed or something like that. Lockheed probably does all, everything on its own paper. But and then I guess there's also like I think there's a lot of government U.S. government regulation about a certain percentage of contracts need to go to uh, women, women and minority um owned businesses or businesses that are majority owned by a minority to be kind of confusing, which sounds good to me. But then that's another another way that sometimes I think these little organizations go through. Because when I've looked at them before, they emphasize that, you know, they're like, follow section, you know, 275B of the stop being an asshole and hiring all your white golf buddies act. Uh, and so, you know, that helps people satisfy that need. So, so then... The other thing, and I think, I think it was, it's, it's Mark Schwartz who used to be, um, a CIO of the, uh, USCIS, which as I always jokingly say, are the border patrol people who are nice. They're the immigration people who help you come into the country and like get your visa and everything instead of the ones who are like, you better not have any fucking apples in your bag because I'm going to smoke your ass if you brought some fruit in here. So th those people are, are very friendly. Lo I love them. When, when I'm going back, usually they're pretty nice. It's actually nice, you know, now that I'm not around English all the time, I go there and even when they're kind of rough with me, they at least ask how I'm doing. Get that nice English prattle or American English prattle to them. So the other thing, as Schwartz pointed out, is that, uh, again, kind of rewording on my own, 
is I think as Americans, our number one concern with government is, and kind of rightly so, if you know, like the history of the, um, well, Tammany Hall and all this kind of stuff. And I don't know, uh, maybe current government is like basically that people are going to use government to rip you off. So there's a lot of oversight and penny pinching and making sure that there's not corruption in the government. So a lot of the deliverable that I think software has in government is proving that there's no corruption, which causes a tremendous amount of paperwork and governments and governance and slowdown and things like that. But again, I think I think if you consider that like a feature of what you deliver, and even from like a I don't know, a lean perspective where you're supposed to only deliver things that are valuable to the customer. If the customer is the the American populace and what's valuable to them is to know that their government's not corrupt, value is being delivered. So, you know, you, you, you get what you want. So then the other issue that comes up all the time is um, uh, is people. So both being able to hire people and pay them enough that have the skills and then being able to retain people uh, because they get better options. And then the result of that is sort of like, um, I don't know, it's not a Peter principle, but it's this depressing thing of like, well, then you end up with people who maybe are not as skilled as you would like them to be. And so the people maybe not are maybe not as skilled or uh, expert or motivated as you would want people to be because you can't pay them well. Or, uh, you know, on the other extreme end, and depending on the agency you're working for, you might have like people who are just like crazy because they're committed to the cause and they're a little a little uh, nutty. But that's mostly in the nonprofit sector. And then I already went over there's a lot of, you know, well, in addition to corruption, there's a lot of, uh, you know, regulations and governance people have to follow and just crazy rules that people may not have in the enterprise. And every now and then they don't have enough money to pay for stuff. But if you're a good salesperson, you uh, you qualify the deal and you're not talking to someone unless they have money. So that shouldn't come up too often. And then also, uh, they're like beset with legacy stuff, right? Like if you read, uh, I tweeted this thing of, there was a, um, a, a postmortem of why the IRS went down last year during tax filing. And, you know, if you read in it, they have like old storage arrays and old mainframes and, you know, Government IT has been around for 50 years, if not more. And a lot of that stuff still runs. So you have to you have to contend with that to, uh, to a great degree. And some of those are the same things you see in private enterprise. But like, I don't, uh, they're especially acute there. And then, and then the last thing that I was talking about with these people yesterday is in, uh, in, in for-profit companies, Ultimately, there is like the CEO or at least the board. But so you've either got a dictator or an oligarchy and they can just sort of like say, you should stop doing dumb shit and do this new thing. Whereas in government, we don't really, you don't always have that as strongly, right? Like there's no, sometimes there is depending on the size of the agency, but you know, you might have to like do something completely different, right? Well, if you got unionized efforts, like forces, maybe you can't like assemble into product teams. And like, I think the even in the presentation, the US Air Force people were going over, um, I forget the, her name, but the, the lady who was talking was saying the staffing problem they have is one, it's hard for them to hire people because they don't pay extremely well. And then two, for some reason, there's some regulation that if you, borrow if you reassign 
a soldier, they can only be, or an airman, as they call them, airmen and women, they can only work with you for six months. So they can, they can get all these volunteers to come work with them for six months, but then they have to leave, which is, you know, my favorite, uh, recommendation for improving something is stop doing dumb shit. But sometimes the dumb shit's immovable for whatever reason. End of chapter. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, I I think the one thing that um, you reminded me of, and I, I don't know, I was trying to find it. There's somebody wrote something like that. Uh, some response to, you know, IT and the government is slow and it's boring. And it was something like that. You know, we get the IT we deserve from the government. And I think yeah. his point was, just about incentives, right? Like as we talked a lot about in this podcast, just about different incentives that, you know, there's not a lot of incentive. Like if the government, if it's sort of, uh, if the incentives are, if you do something wrong, like people get fired or just scandal, right? Then they're, people are just going to naturally be much more conservative. And I think that's mm -hmm. what his point was about, you know, in the case of a private corporation, it's usually like make more money, push, you know, uh, move fast, break things, whatever cliche you want to say. But in the in the context of the government, it's really not the case. It's more like, well, we need to be very, very cautious here because if we get it wrong, we're going to be in the news. We're going to have these yep. huge problems. But if we get it right, you know, we're not no one goes public in the government. There's no big IPO, right? It's just like <laughs> you did a good job. So, um, so the, to some degree, like we if we want to complain about it, we also have to understand that we've loaded down these organizations with lots of regulations, lots of policies. We're not really that forgiving when they make mistakes. Um, and therefore when they get something working and it's, it's going pretty well, the fact that it's 50 years old, it's not a problem, right? I mean, that's sort of meeting the incentives, if you will. So yeah. I do, um, you know, I do see that, but I do, uh, occasionally, you know, something you know, to kind of go on a local level and just to give uh, some credit at the other side is I think I mentioned this before, but uh, here in um, Travis County, Texas, you can protest your taxes online. And that's like to me, I just think it's a great example of a simple digital transformation project where, yeah, they let me just put in what I think my house is worth. They came back with a, you know, a, a slightly above what I wanted, but it all got done. Right. And it was like, mm -hmm. that's just a great example of like simple digital transformation. I think it saves all the homeowners here in Austin a lot of time. I'm sure it saves the back office a lot of time. Um, and it's not, a, and if I showed you the UI, like you wouldn't be like, wow, you know, it's not, <laughs> but it works. Right. And then so, um, and sometimes maybe that's in the government, that's what it is. It's just making these small things just work a little bit better. Um, and that, you know, given the scale of the of the problems they're trying to solve or the people they touch, sometimes that can be a huge value. So, yeah, yeah. you know, let's not overlook that. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think to some extent outside of, uh, let's call it defense inclusive of like military and spies, uh, and, and policing functions, uh, like the FBI and stuff. Let, let's from the government, let's exclude the people with guns, right? Like we'll take them out of the picture because they got their own set of stuff. Like, I think, I think as a citizen, that's what's most frustrating. And then, Con, uh, uh, on the other hand, delightful. The thing that's most frustrating about government IT is just when there's like simple stuff that, that could be done. Like you just described, right? Like instead of having to fill out this paperwork, could you just make a form out of a Google spreadsheet? <laughs> right. And like, yeah. I'll enter like Brandon Wichard, my address and the money I think it is. And then, because basically, at the end of the day, there's there's multiple people down there at that at Travis County who are going to open a spreadsheet, <laughs> right? And they're going to like look at it and be like, eh, all right, whatever. And then like you know they're going to probably put put some number in another spreadsheet, and then that's going to go through some system and come back to you. And then like you click yes or no, 
and there you go, right? And it seems like a very simple system. So it's delightful when those things are taken care of, uh, which is nice to see. And and then and then you made speaking of bullet points, you made me think of like uh, in response to the like there's no IPO. Like I've noticed like three types of motivations you can at least use in the the sales process for selling software. And I think I think the first one is like we could call it like mission. And and you see this for example, and by by that I mean, you know, it might be if, if you're if you're like a cynical American or even a cynical European or other countries. If you're a person, you probably mostly assume that people in the government don't give a fuck, right? Like that seems to be what people think. But I've met many people in the government who are actually like, I do give a fuck, right? Like they actually want to do their job and perform it well and uh, do things like that. Like I remember talking with some people in the, um, uh, whatever the agency that does forest management is, like the Smokey the Bear agency. And they were all like, you know, uh, they're all like, yeah, we're basically like, you know, tree hugging hippies who love the earth and we want to help out with that. <laughs> and so like, and there's probably a lot of people in like the EPA and I would imagine even in, you know, more obscure to most people, places like HUD and things like that. So you can, and, and especially in the military and uh, the people with guns are all over this thing. They like call it mission. And so oftentimes you can s- sell on doing a good job and I think that's a huge degree of like, uh, if you listen to the Air Force people, what they're into, they're like, yeah, uh, it takes us like 10 or 30 years to get software into production. Meanwhile, we have a new enemy every 10 to 30 years who operates completely differently. So that shit don't work, right? Like they actually identify that they need to change things around, which, so that's a nice thing when you find that. And then also you're kind of, you weren't alluding to this, but one thing that I've seen motivate people is just like anything else. Like you, you, to say you prey upon it is a little too, uh, predatory, I guess, by definition. But one of the motivations you tap into is like, well, what do you, how would you like to make your me- next job better? Like, how would you like to address your career by doing something good and important here that allows you to either advance up to the G track? You know, you want to go from G9 to G10 or I, I, barely know what how government civilian ratings go but somehow you want to go up through the ranks or you could go work in the private sector and triple your income and get a bunch of stock options because you're the person who understands that so you can kind of in doing a good job and then also kind of helping them publicize it and market themselves you can you can go uh you can motivate around that and then finally everyone's favorite uh you can always make money in enterprise software off of a crisis so there's there's some terrible thing that happens. Uh, usually nowadays it's security related, uh, but you know there's there's something that happens and and that you go in and you're and everyone's like, well this was a disaster. Uh, so let's 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 one generally try to fix it and two show that we're doing a good job by spending some money on it. And so that those are I don't know those are things you can go in with versus I think the chief motive you can use these motivations as well, I like to sell to to for-profit organizations. But as you pointed out, another motivation they have is I'd like to make some money, (laughs) right? Like (laughs) that's the easiest motivation to to sell based on uh, instead of these other things. Yes. Money, money, always good. And speaking of, of money, we did have, I think the most important news of the week, uh, at least to me was Cloudera and Hortonworks, um, 
decided to merge. So I, you know, sometimes like you read through these things, you're like, what's the full story? What's going on here? Um, there's must be a, a backstory we don't know about. But I think in this case, it's it's just as simple as possible. It's like, yep, they both are doing like you know some version of uh, repackaging Hadoop. They're both in big data. Uh, it seems like just them being together would make a lot of sense. So it make it easier for customers, make it easier for all of us to understand um, where we, what Hadoop does and where we can uh, go get someone to help us with it. So uh, them merging, like I, I just think, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I think they'll do well. And uh, it, I don't know, you know, obviously you can look at the stock split and see who did better or worse, but like ultimately it does seem like these two things together will make more money. So, so mm-hmm. did I miss anything that oversimplify that one? Is there no, some no. like secret I, I think, I, backstory? No, I think, I think, about? I think when you see two public companies merge, there's usually not a whole lot of shenanigans going on, right? It's always like a little weird when private companies merge because sometimes that's just like some VCs like sorting out which column in the spreadsheet is red versus green and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, the only related thing, which I, I haven't looked at the Hadoop market in forever. Uh, but like, I, I was just talking with someone last week about like whatever happened to Hadoop. And like, I, I assume they both are basically Hadoop distro companies with, with like that thick layer of like, you know, the, the, the fat around the, you know, the pork meat that makes bacon, right? You can't, you can't have bacon without fat. Uh, and no, no open source software without fat added onto it, or at least revenue wise. Um, so I think they have a lot of like analytics and probably like, uh, I, I don't know. My dog has an opinion. <laughs> oh. he, clearly the dog very motivated by this acquisition. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. It's, it's more to it than, uh, than just a simple, uh, two good companies coming together in yeah. his mind. I, so I think, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, they probably have like a lot of analytics and expertise, hopefully in vertical things or partnership with with uh, with SIs and other people who help out with that. But yeah, I'm I'm curious, like, so did that Hadoop thing work out, or have they transformed into doing something else? Uh, I think it's mostly you know repackaging you know, various and obviously offering additional service on Hadoop. But I do I think it's more because you kind of said something earlier and. I I think it's more like, you know, you're talking about the Hadoop market. I think what this really shows to me is just kind of the more, you know, basic thing is like, you know, there's a, there's just obviously like the database or data storage or data persistence market. And with all, and this is what we talk about all the time, right? About there's various cloud vendors that all have different, you know, variations of how you can store data. And, And really what it kind of tells me is just like, hey, there's just this big, you know, let's just call it no SQL big data storage market that's happening. And there's lots of different solutions. And at one point, I think Hadoop was synonymous with that, right? And like, maybe there'd be like a market, but really what it's showing here is like Hadoop or this enterprise software is just like one way to do it, but it's really competing against probably Amazon and Google and just like kind of totally different approaches to storing data is what um, I think is going on here. So the fact that they get together and that way, now anytime someone's like, well, maybe we should check out Hadoop, it'll be really obvious to them to be like, oh, well, we should go, whatever the name of the new company is going to be. It's like, we should check out with these guys before, because I think in this case, when they were fragmented, it was like, oh, now I got to look at a couple of different vendors and do what we were just trying to do. It was like, well, how are they different? What are they different? And then maybe you log into your uh uh, cloud provider, um, your preferred cloud provider, and you just go into the catalog and you're like, well, what do they have, right? So this sort of, I think, just simplifies everything. They don't have to, if you will, have this micro market where they're competing. They can just be like, hey, we've got a great solution built on Hadoop 
and here's why you should use it, which is just a much simpler way. It's a much simpler way to sell, sell than market it, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think this is an example of now now fully aware that both of us were like, I don't I don't really know what the deal is. Like, it is an example of where like it would be uh, it would be nicer to get a little bit more from the uh, the, the tech press people, right? Because I was looking, I just looked at two articles to like get a sense of like, well, what do these companies actually do? And both of them didn't really say. <laughs> so it, it, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe there's a good like four or five one write up that's like, here's what these companies have been doing in their history. But that kind of context, context is, uh, sadly lacking from stuff, which, yeah, it might, which I guess might also be indicative of like, um, they haven't the idea of big data as both of these articles sort of bemoan right away hasn't been in the news enough that like, Tech journalists don't just know off the tip of their tongue, like or their fingers, what uh, what these companies do. Yeah, well, I, and my guess is right. And to be more fair about it, is like I bet you to the people that use these products day to day that like you know are you know responsible for it. Is like I bet you there are some significant usability things. Like one does something a lot easier. Mm. One has a, a really a, a much nicer set of command line utilities. And so because I think that's when you get into these things, right? It's like that's really where the differentiation comes. But the people that are going to be aware of that are really, you know, in this case, like developers or, you know, people that are heads down all the time in it. And it isn't going, which again, like, which is important, right? I'm sure that frustrates both these companies. Look at all this work we've done. But like when you're trying to just, you know, move some traction, right? And you're talking to investors or just generalized technology people like ourselves. It's like that kind of gives you an indication, though, that like that maybe this does need to come together because a broader message isn't coming through. Mm. You know, if, if the fact that I got to download it, I got to use it and I got to install it before I really start to understand what's different. It's like, that's a pretty, you know, that's a big requirement. Like how many people are going to do that um, before they, you know, in, without having some higher level message to carry them through that process? Mm-hmm. Well, they say their, uh, their CFO says they'll make 1 billion in revenue by the end of 2020. So what is that? Uh, we're almost to 2019. So that's two years, two and a half years from now. We'll have yeah. we'll, we'll make a to do item two and a half years from now. We'll check in, check maybe, in, maybe we'll know check in. We'll add add the reminder, Surrey, Surrey, hey Surrey, add a reminder. Well, you know th- this this reminds me. Do do we do we have a uh, uh, an ad read this week, Brandon? Yeah, in fact, we do. No, know, that was my course. fantastic segue. Why don't you yes. tell people about our good <laughs> friend Datadog? Absolutely. Um, as always, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, and this week Datadog wants you to know about Watchdog. Watchdog automatically detects performance problems in your applications without any manual setup or configuration. By continuously examining application performance data, it identifies anomalies like a sudden spike in hit rate that could otherwise have remained invisible. Once an anom- anomaly is detected, Watchdog provides you with all the relevant information you need to get to the root cause faster, such as stack traces, error messages, and related issues from the same time frame. So, so don't wait. Go sign up for a free trial. Go to www.datadog.com slash talk. Sign up, and if you do a couple things, set some dashboards, they'll send you a great T-shirt. And, of course, we want you to tell them that your friends at Software Defined Talk sent you. And, as always, we thank Datadog for being a great sponsor. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get to our recommendations and wrap up, when I, when I was talking to these government people yesterday, or talking with, I should say, uh, there was the conversation of like, um, like open government 
as in like platform platform services that uh, I guess you would share amongst the government. And it got me thinking like, you know, usually, uh, you know, I, I I always think I should cancel my like my Stratechery subscription because like, you know, I start, you know, just like Facebook. I get it. Right. Like I kind of understand it. But uh, I was re- I was thinking like I think all of that like platform strategy stuff that old uh, Ben Thompson is always going over, like you could kind of lift and with a little bit of tweaking apply to the idea of like open government platform stuff because there's very similar dynamics going on, and of course there's not the profit motivation, but structurally like a lot of you know like let's pick one thing like single sign on so that you can use one login to log into just imagine if you will. That when uh, all the way from when when you're going to dispute your property taxes to renewing your passport, you could use the same login (laughs) and like and even even better if you were uh, just like if you um, well, they can't really do this extremely effectively. But just like when you're with one uh, hotel chain and uh, in in theory, no matter which of the sub brands you stay with, you see the activity and can get a receipt for it, which is actually a big ass lie. It's very rare that you can easily get the receipt. But imagine that that worked and you had that at the government level. Like it would be crazy uh, if you had that kind of portal. But, you know, that would be sort of the point of having a platform and having an aggregator and, and all of that. And, you know, I think I think in the U.S. it would probably be impossible because we have like, you know, get off my land syndrome. We don't want uh, we don't want the government to be able to identify us or centralize uh, what we do because. I don't know why they'll penetrate our tinfoil hats or something. Uh, but it, it does seem like, I don't know. I, I have no answer beyond this, but I think you could take his aggregation stuff and uh, figure out how that could form the strategy for, uh, for government work. And maybe it would even like rejigger some incentives for people to actually care about it. Yeah, no, there's a fascinating, I mean, there's a bunch of write-ups about this, about, um, I think there's a podcast episode, maybe dip it up, uh, dig it up of like one of like not this American life, but something like this talking about how uh, it's a whole uh, history of like how the social security number became mm. like the de facto uh, national ID for the United States and how it was really never ever meant for this ever because, uh, but when they started that system, they needed it. And so, and, and it's, it's interesting because they, in that same um, uh, podcast that I'll have to find, they also talk about, I can't remember which country it is. There's like, a country that has a very modern system where everyone has a card, like has the same thing. And, you know, they're talking about all the benefits of it. Like, yeah, just like, you know, it just all works. Like it was kind of like, if you will, design, like re-architected, right, from the ground up. And, it, and they have, um, it's a much simpler. But, you know, like all of these things, like in some ways, like that Ben Thompson stuff, as he kind of alludes to, is like, you know, on the face of it, there's always a lot of benefits to aggregating, you know, all of this together because it is so much simpler for the end users. But then what comes along very quickly are all the problems of like, okay, now you have this person or this aggregator that has all the data and it's like, do you trust them? Do you think they're going to do the right thing? Like, do they even know, do they even think about doing the right thing? And then, you know, so it creates a whole nother set of um, secondary problems. And I think this is like what society is obviously trying to figure out. It's like, it would make sense to centralize all this, but then there's going to be some problems with it. And then how are we going to figure that out? So maybe if we can't figure out those problems, maybe we just live with like a decentralized, confusing system, mm. right? So which I know is kind of paradoxical. It's like, well, why wouldn't you fix this? Well, 
if we fix it, we don't think we can fix the the second order problems that come from it. And that's sort of uh, that social security uh, episode really kind of goes into it, like how it they they got into it, and then they were like, ah, you know, now suddenly. You know, they took on a whole nother problem that they didn't think they were solving. And it was like, well, mm. maybe this wasn't the best way to do it. But um, but of course, like, you know, you just like at some point you just have to work with what you have, like all software. Yeah. You know, that that reminds me of I've been watching like way too much Star Trek Voyager when I should be sleeping or doing something else. And and they, they uh, as always, in the beginning of any Star Trek series, they're sort of like uh, using the Vulcans as a foil to explain how awesome humans are. Like very, very constant theme in uh, Star Trek, right? Uh, so they kind of ran out that with the first few seasons with that guy, uh, Tuvok. And, uh, and then they ditched, uh, I, 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 you know, it'd be fun to go back and read the stuff, but for some reason they got rid of one, uh, female character, uh, who, who her species only lasted three or four years anyway. So maybe there was a good expiration date on her. And then they introduced the one that most people know, I think, from Voyager, this uh, this Seven of Nine character. And now she has become the uh, the foil for explaining how awesome humans are. Because she used to be a Borg. So she's always like, this is illogical and inefficient and it doesn't make any sense and blah, blah, blah. But then inevitably it's always like, oh, intuition and whatever. But I think a lot of it gets down to like what you were just saying is it actually is equally logical on the human side where they're like, there's these second or third order effects that oftentimes happen that you haven't considered in your completely logical mindset, right? Like it would be most efficient to like centralize all this data because one, if, if anything, you would remove the fact that ever that there's 50 other people centralizing the same data. So you would remove that cost. And then the, uh, the, uh, the error rates that occur with that from the system. But then a thing that a logical person wouldn't consider is like, oh, yeah, but humans are completely irrational, highly corruptible people who will just like fuck that up. <laughs> so like you need to take into account the fact that bad things will happen that you can't really predict with logic. So so uh, there you go. Star Trek Voyager. F- fun stuff. But man, if you sort of like binge watch that show, you realize how many ludicrous plots they have. Just like really really bad like hey man they got a lot of episodes they gotta make i know i know that's 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 the other side of it is 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 you're like man the fact that this this holographic doctor is immune to biological problems they really get a lot of mileage out of that like no end of mileage and uh, they had it that maybe someone who's watched the whole series know this but there was a bit a bit of a spoiler here they set up an impossible conclusatory thing where the holographic doctor suddenly wakes up like 700 years in the future and uh, there's this misconstrued story of, of Voyager being evil. And uh, but then they don't know if Voyager ever got back because it was wreckage, ever got back to Earth. And then obviously something happened where the doctor was all alone. And so that implies that at the end of the series, they'll never have gotten back to Earth or somehow the, the doctor will have to get separated from them, which is like I think there's like seven or eight seasons of Voyager. And this is in like season three. And man. Talk about having like setting yourself up for something that your completely different staff of writers is going to have to deal with. That's sort of like, I think, unfair to the people uh, further down the road. So as as the voiceover of the dead wife of Gene Roddenberry always says, and now the conclusion, whenever the uh, the new episode begins, <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens then. So uh, th- as mentioned, there's a lot of uh, conferences that, that I'll be going to. I think I think. Um, I don't have a link to this, but there's a in in uh, 
in Berlin, there's a Dell uh, service provider conference thing that I'm going to speak at next week instead of being at the Cloud Foundry Summit. And then uh, the week after that, I'll be in Paris at DevOps Days Paris, just uh, just uh, homing, that is manning the uh, or staffing, as I like to say, the uh, the table there. That'll be fun. Then I'm going to be at several other places. And uh, uh, most notably, I'll be doing a big tour of Asia in like Beijing and uh, Singapore and Seoul and Tokyo from November 3rd to 12th. If you just go to like springonetour.io, you can find all those dates. And there's other stuff in the show notes. And then uh, how, how would people get a sticker if they wanted to one? Yeah. So as always, if you want a sticker, just email your postal address to stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. And I'll be happy to send you a sticker pretty much anywhere in the world. And I also want to clean up a couple of things we were talking about. Uh, the capital of Canada is Ottawa. Ottawa. Yeah, so uh, that's apologize. right. I knew I that all along. I prevented. I didn't say Montreal because I was like, ah, oh, that's the rookie mistake. So I will say, uh, I haven't sent a sticker to Canada in a while. It's been a while. So mm-hmm. you know, if you live in Ottawa, you one, sorry that we didn't know you were the capital right away, and then two, send us an email and we'll send you uh, a bunch of stickers. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we also have a, a a Slack channel that if you go to softwaredefinedtalk.com/slash/slack, uh, you should join that. There's there's sometimes more intelligent conversation in there than on the actual podcast. <laughs> De- well, depending on how good. many expenses I've had to file this week. I would say it's a good time to probably get in because uh, I, I don't know. I feel like conference season kind of kicks up mm-hmm. and uh, you know, that means there's a lot of announcements and occasionally some of us get in there, um, especially like around AWS reinvent and some of the big ones, right? Cause like a lot of people are watching them online. So it's a good way. Like, you know, if you're watching it online, you can watch it online and, you can uh, converse, converse with everyone. And, and then speaking of, to completely fall down on my job, in contrast to a petard, uh, I didn't really talk about anything we announced at Spring One Platform last week. There's like a new version of Pivotal Cloud Foundry and Pivotal Container Service. But we did talk about it at length on uh, the most recent Pivotal Conversations episode with me and Richard Sirota there. So if you're interested in that, uh, you just go to soundcloud.com slash Pivotal Conversations. And uh, you should subscribe to that anyways. There's uh, We talk about relevant like tech infrastructure tech news. There's a lot more .NET news in there. And then we interview people about uh, what goes on in the, you know, pivotal-oriented type of the world. But there's there's good tech stuff. Like we had a great interview uh, maybe three, four episodes back where we talked with one of our product managers. And at some unnamed food service company, they went over a great example of how they discovered uh, the right kind of software to make to help the kitchen staff. And I think I think they uh, they literally had like you know programming hipsters and hairnets in the kitchen, like waking up at three a.m. to go help the chefs at four thirty a.m. So if you like if you like seeing hipsters squirm or learning how they generally do good good stuff, it's it's a nice listen to see what they do. And and the process they went through and the the stuff they came up with was uh was a good solution there. So there there's my little my little pitch. You should go listen to Pivotal Conversations. Check that out. So so with that, what do you have to recommend this week? All right, I got a couple of things. One, the name of that podcast I was talking about, if you're interested in social security. So it's called How Social Security Numbers Became a Form of National Identification. And it's from our friends at Planet Money. So, of course, they always do a good job. So we'll put a link in there if you want to interest, uh, looking for something to listen to. And then I have recently discovered a podcast, which I think is kind of popular. It's called What Really Happened? And uh, it's nothing more than uh, a journalist kind of doing a deep dive 
on some kind of historical event that's kind of settled down that everyone kind of understands what happens. But he kind of goes back and like, you know, and analyzes it again and often, you know, kind of comes to different conclusions or educates you on like what happened, like when everyone wasn't watching. And it's all kinds of stuff. It's like uh, he did an episode on this, like this thing that happened in Cuba where like a uh, 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 U.S., uh, I guess, uh, State Department people were having problems with like audio, like just kind of audio weapons. So he goes through all of that. He did something on Serena Williams and, you know, um, her kind of comeback and what happened at Indian Wells. So it's just kind of really interesting where he takes stuff and just like really because I just like this where it's like, you know, you almost almost can almost um, believe that the accepted narrative is mm. usually incomplete, and in, uh, but he just takes all kinds of events. So some of them are sports, some of them are historical, but they're just usually something you heard about probably two or three years ago, and you're like, oh, like whatever happened with that. So, uh, so I like it. I think you should you should enjoy it, and it's uh, what really happened. The links in there, and I I thought to myself like, like what what I want to give them an episode suggestion. So this is my episode suggestion: is that uh, recently the New Yorker wrote a, like a long profile on Mark Zuckerberg. And um, they cited this example, this thing that's been cited multiple times. I've seen it a lot of different places where Mark Zuckerberg was on an airplane playing Scrabble against a high school student of one of his coworkers, right? And then she beat him in Scrabble. And then as the story goes, he wrote a problem, uh, wrote a program to like figure out all the uh, possible words that he has for the you know, letters he has. And then he uh, played her again. Right. And then I think ultimately, you know, this was an example given that he's a very competitive person. And I'm like, I've, I've always like really wondered about this entire story. I'm like, did this really happen? Like if Mark Zuckerberg was on an airplane, like he had his laptop there with all the dictionary words and he chose to like, like write a Scrabble solver. Like he just like, I'm going to write one. Why? But like while they're playing Scrabble, he's like, let's stop. I'm going to take like some time to write it. And he wrote it. And he had like a whole dictionary on his computer and then he played it again and he was just like getting options of the words. But like, isn't that just cheating? Like, what would be the point of that? Yeah, right? Like if that, I was what, playing, I was going like, to ask, so, like, it's like, that's like what? having a dictionary. You can't yeah, do that. Like, so, 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 and also it's usually sh- shown as an example. He's a very competitive person. And I don't doubt that he's a competitive person, but like, like if I did that, like if I was, I was thinking like, I was like, what's the hypothetical? Me, you, Matt Ray, and Matt Ray is the only one with a high school age son. So we're on there. I'm playing Scrabble with him. He beats me and on the airplane. I'm like, okay, let's stop playing. I'm going to write this program. Um, but then I would just be like, I don't have the internet because like lots of Scrabble solvers, right? There's like lots of them online. You can just like, where's the friends everywhere. But I'm like, I'm going to write my own. But then like if Matt Ray was sitting there, he's like, well, that's not fair. Like you're just cheating against my son. Like, wouldn't you say that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why? Yeah. and then of course we're playing Scrabble, I would assume to pass time on the airplane. But now if we stop, you know, then I have to like, you know, the other person just has to do something else while he writes the program. So my whole point is like, this is what this podcast does. It takes these <laughs> things and like goes way deep on them. And like, I think I'm the only one that probably cares about this, but I just read this anecdote all the time. I'm like, I want to know everything. I want to know who the high school person was. I want to know, like, did they have a Scrabble set on the plane? Why did they have it on the plane? Did they not have internet? I want like a full two hours of like what really went down on the Scrabble of the Mark Zuckerberg. So hopefully someone will uh, pass this on to them and one day someone will do a full episode on that. Yeah, you know, you know, I don't usually listen to any podcasts you recommend. But this one, I, I'm going to try this one out. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost like a, uh, you know, there, there's a genre in the, uh, in, in like the, uh, the, the sort of Merlin Mann, uh, podcast world called Turns Out. 
that's you know like the which is all of the annoying like public radio like kooky social uh not social studies what it, what is the uh the daniel kinnerman you know biases people what do you call that whatever the study of like it turns out that like it, the malcolm gladwell thing right it turns out that this counterintuitive thing is quadruply counterintuitive but this sounds like it's actually it's not really like a turns out thing it's just like oh people assume this is the truth and it's really not <laughs> right like like yeah. historically it's just wrong or like it looks like oh uh, they're doing the series kind of thing but anyways uh episode two is about the secret sonic war i remember hearing about that that like people left cuba because it was like this sonic war going on yeah so he goes into like, the that sounds and, like bullshit. Say, and they're not um you know it's one of these things where uh, it's not like a serial thing. Like you, every episode is a different, so you can just scan down like which thing. Like yeah. Sonic, oh, I just meant serial because you go to their yeah. web page and it starts with episode one, which you right, know, right. makes me think that they're doing a uh, episodic. No, no. They're all they're all individually consumable. Yeah. They're just simple simple stories. That's yeah. It. Well, I'll have to I'll have to check that out. Well, my recommendation this week, I I have two recommendations and then a uh, uh, an open ended comment. We'll see if I remember. Let me write this down. Uh, one, so over here, I got one of these at a European conference, but they have these water bottles. I don't, you have to tell me if they have them over there called doppers, D-O-P-P-E-R. And the best way I can describe them is like, if, if, uh, if Tom's shoes and Yeti like had a child while they were like vacationing in like, you know, Germany or something, right? So, so they have like, it's super fancy, uh, high, high marked up like just water bottles and they have like, you know, insulated ones and they have, um, if you see a picture of them, they're like a normal water bottle. And then on top, there's the screw off thing that one can just screw off to have a spout on it, but you can also screw off the whole top. And then you've got like a miniature wine glass type of shape that you can use. So it's got mm, a cup built into it. Yeah. And, uh, um, as, 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 as Kim, my wife has said many times, why would you ever want to use that? Uh, and you know, she's not wrong. It is kind of weird, but the only use for, for that cup thing that I, I haven't put to use cause I've been trying to like severely cut down my alcohol consumption is like, like, you know, around here in Amsterdam, you can just like, they're very liberal about booze drinking, not to like excess, like you're on bourbon street, but like, for example, uh, there was a, um, an opening, you know, like, um, what would you call it? You know, the kind of events you have at a school, like two weeks in, they're like, we're going to have our school beginning reception. Um, so we had one of those and like you walk into the building and there's like a big, one of those big buckets full of ice with like bottles of Prosecco, you know, which is Spanish champagne in it. And, and I looked over to my wife and like, wow, I could get into this kind of school system. And then, and then they had the kids handing out glasses of champagne and it was just like fantastic. Things are going well. And they had a crep station. It was really nice. So anyways, you can go to like Vondel Park or something. And lots of people have like a bottle of wine that they bring, you know, hang out there on the lawn and have some wine. So if you had these dopper bottles, you could put wine in them and then you've got a wine cup built into it. But that's that's all I can think of so far. Anyhow, these bottles are kind of fun. I bought like four of the plastic ones and I have two of the insulated ones. And uh, I don't know. They're they're worth looking into. They're uh I, don't, I, I recommend them. D-O-P-P-E-R. I don't even know if they're available in the U.S., but you can definitely get them over here. And then the next thing is uh, I, I've, I've figured out a mystery. Like every time I go through the Schiphol uh, security lines, 
not every time, but a lot more than back home, I get pulled aside for the uh, the inspection, you know, looking through my bag. And it's kind of funny, like over here in Europe, the security line people are super nice, but I think they're a lot mm, more inquisitive. <laughs> like they're a lot more thorough than people back in the U.S. So you have like the opposite in the U.S. where like the TSA people are like not too nice unless you like chance upon one that's nice. And then they don't seem to be that thorough. I don't know. Maybe they are because I went to the TSA pre-line so much. But anyways, when I go through the Shippo line, I feel like two-thirds or half of the time I get pulled aside to look through the bag. And finally, the person who pulled me aside last time, he was he was smiley and nice, but he was basically like, you have too many electronics. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like too many wires and, you know, I've got two microphones. And I think I think Bridget said this at some point. She had a similar experience, but... I didn't say this to him because whatever, but it's just sort of like, yeah, I mean, that's my job. I It's not like I can have less. Like I need this microphone in case I record a podcast and I need this one in case I do that. And like I got an iPad and a laptop, so I need a power cord. Then I'm going to need some redundant like other, I need like three other types of cords. And once I get another Apple watch, that's going to be a fourth cord. And then of course I need a, a battery charger in case my phone runs out. And it's just like, what are you going to do, man? But uh, yeah, so there, there's your advice. Uh, have less electronics. Try to work that out when you want to expedite yourself. But then sometimes you go through there and they don't care and it's fine. And then also I asked them about this. This is some pro tips for the Shipple security line. So there's two security lines you can go through. And I'm not quite sure why they're different. Why they're different. I'm sure there's great reasons. There's the security lines you go through for international travel, international plus England. So good job on that Brexit stuff, making my life a lot easier. Although I do have the UK registered traveler thing, which I totally recommend. Very easy to sign up for. And then you just breeze through when you're entering uh, the United Kingdom. But so you've got the international travel line you go through. And then you have the EU travel line. And in the EU travel line, inexplicably, you have to take your electronics out of the bag I think to scan versus in the international one, I don't think you have to take the electronics out. I don't know. It might be the other way, but I was asking the security person about that. And, and in a very, in a very Dutch way, he was just kind of like, yeah, I don't know. They're different. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. that's some, some more fun trivia for you. So with that, this has been another expert led, uh, chock full of the recent news episode of Software Defined Talk. This is episode 149. So if you want to get the show notes for this episode and then start to browse around for other episodes, you can go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 149. You should join our Slack channel. And uh, we also have another episode, Software Defined Interviews podcast. I have an interview with uh, Derek Harris of architect.io that hopefully I'll get around to posting someday. Maybe if I wake up early this weekend, I'll go in there and put it up. But we've got a lot of great episodes over there. And all of the, uh, we used to have a private members only podcast that was kind of similar to the content we had in here where we pick out a, uh, a topic area of the enterprise software world. And uh, Brandon and I would pick it apart in detail. But all of those episodes are in the back catalog if you want to go uh, pick through them. And uh, they're kind of like uh, one day when we don't, we don't have any jobs, we should turn, turn them into a semester lecture series. And, uh, Maybe we can go to the Austin Community College. You have to get a master's degree first because I think you can be a lecturer there if you have a master's degree. Or maybe this is our loophole. I, I remember someone telling me, but this is like 
over 10 years ago that if you were teaching computer stuff, you didn't need a graduate degree, which mm, I okay, love the uh, loophole. Yeah, I love the loophole computers afford. People think computers are this magical, mysterious thing. And so they give it they give it this loophole that that, that mm. I always afforded that. Anyways, it would make for a great lecture series. Uh, hey, Kote, yeah. I, I can't let this go. I want to know if you heard of this other loophole. My uh, mm. wife, who's a high school counselor in college now, did you know that your language what was traditionally considered your foreign language requirement? It can be satisfied by taking a programming language at what? many universities. Yes, that is. I, and uh, I would, as someone that has struggled mightily with, I mean, maybe with English, but foreign languages for sure, I can assure you a foreign language, learning a foreign language and learning a computer programming language uh, are not even remotely the same that's in amazing. any way. So, uh, but I do think that's an interesting little loophole. Now, that, wait, wait uh, where is that? And what kind of? Uh, I think it's a lot of places they will let you satisfy, like the, the now they just call it like a language. Like, they, hmm. you know, your various places, like, okay, well, if you didn't, like traditionally, like Spanish, French, German, um, you know, whatever, right? Some type of foreign language. But now, hmm. I guess, uh, you know, Swift, Java, uh, um, I, I want to really be node, right? JavaScript's probably the one. It's like, yeah. Mm. So, if, uh, but I, I thought to myself, like, yeah, no, it's just not the same at all. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, I mean, loophole. that that that's that's amazing. That's great to hear. I love I love what people are up to there in higher education. That's good stuff. But you know, uh, I've been, you know, I I think I think if you're gonna learn a language, if you're at a young age, you should figure out Spanish, French, or German. That's what I would do because I think. If you're already a native English speaker, like Spanish is just incredibly practical as as a language, uh, unless you go to Asia. But uh, those other two languages, I think, will give you a, a very interesting insight into the English language itself. Because English is basically like, uh, you know, Latin. Well, to say that it's Latin is to say it's basically French, German, and you know, English, <laughs> and then just like a bunch of other miscellaneous crap we just pick up from the floor every ten years, and you know put into the big chopper of English. But I think I think knowing some German and French would have been helpful in figuring out the English language. And that's my other pro tip for people who, uh, uh, you know, if you're a native English speaker, then by definition, you speak the language perfectly. So you're fine. It's no problem. So uh, with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. That moment is presented by Pivotal. Pivotal combines platform, tools, and methodology to help the world's largest software companies adapt to change and deliver exceptional user experiences. Pivotal is hosting their developer conference, Spring One Platform, September 24th to 27th in Washington, D.C. Come to Spring Platform to learn, build, deploy, and run cloud-native software. This unique four-day event brings together leading software companies, enterprises, and cloud experts to collaborate, share knowledge, and create transformational software. Visit springplatform.io and use the code THATMOMENT to get $200 off your ticket. Bye-bye! That Moment is presented by Pivotal. Pivotal combines platform, tools, and methodology to help the world's largest companies adapt to change and deliver exceptional user experiences. Pivotal is hosting their developer conference, Spring One Platform, September 24th to 27th in Washington, D.C. Come to Spring Platform to learn, build, deploy, and run cloud-native software. This unique four-day event brings together leading software companies, enterprises, and cloud experts to collaborate, share knowledge, and create transformational software. Visit springoneplatform.io and use the code THATMOMENT to get $200 off your ticket.
That moment is presented by Pivotal. Pivotal combines platform tools and methodology to help the world's largest companies adapt to change and deliver exceptional user experiences. Pivotal is hosting their developer conference, Spring One Platform, September 24th to 27th in Washington, D.C. Come to Spring One Platform to learn, build, deploy, and run cloud-native software. This unique four-day experience brings together leading software companies, enterprises, and cloud experts to collaborate, share knowledge, and create transformational software. Visit springoneplatform.io and use the code THATMOMENT to get $200 off your ticket. What a deal!